0: Chapter 8 of the History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Manila Galleon. In the same year that Juan Rodriguez was ordered to the north on the voyage that resulted in the discovery of Alta California, the Viceroy Mendoza sent Villalobos with a fleet across the Pacific. the san lazaro islands where magellan and other spanish navigators had touched before arrived at these islands in 1542 villalobos rechristened them filipinas in honor of the prince of asturias the later philip II of spain thus did the philippines as we call them acquire their name these islands many thousand miles across the sea were destined to be during some two centuries more closely attached to the history of Alta California than almost any other land on earth. This was due to the sailings of the Manila Galleon, which for 250 years went annually down the coast on its long voyage from Manila in the Philippines to Acapulco in New Spain. The history of this service dates from the year 1565 magellan loyasa saavedra Grijalva, and villalobos had previously headed expeditions which crossed the pacific from east to west but no ship had yet succeeded in the attempt to make a return voyage in fifteen fifty nine philip ii gave orders that a fleet should be sent to effect a conquest of the philippines and to find a sailing route across the pacific from asia to the americas he also commanded a certain father andres de urdaneta to accompany the expeditions ostensibly as chaplain but really in order to have full charge of the sailing strange as it may seem that he gave such a post to a man of the religious profession the science of navigation was perhaps much more within urdaneta's ken than the tenets of his faith born in 1498 he had for many years been a sailor of experience had voyaged around the world and was better acquainted with the pacific waters than any of the king's subjects late in life he had taken religious vows but he was too valuable a sailor to be spared four ships ranging in size from five hundred to forty tons and about four hundred men were gathered together for the voyage and instructions were given Go to the Philippines and the adjacent islands, discover the return route to New Spain with all possible speed, and bring back spices and other valuable commodities. Thus ran the instructions. Furthermore, a portion of this meager force, under Miguel Gomez de Legazpi, was ordered to effect the conquest of a group of islands containing millions of natives. The start was made from Navidad in New Spain on November 21, 1564, where the Neta ran south to about 10 degrees north of the equator, and then sailed due west to Guam, over which today the American flag is raised. On February 13, 1565, the expedition reached the Philippines after a voyage of less than three months— in quicker time than Juan Rodriguez had taken to go from the same port of Navidad to San Diego in Alta California. Indeed, the route westward across the Pacific offered comparatively few problems to the navigator. An establishment was made on the island of Cebu, whence the Spaniards proceeded to the conquest of the group. It was from Cebu that Ordineta started back, and, indeed, it was not until 1571 that the Philippine galleon sailed from Manila, for it was in that year that the conquest reached the site which thenceforth served as the capital and metropolis of Spain's trans-Pacific possessions. The currents and seasonal storms would not permit of a return along the route whence they had come. So Urdaneta, who left Cebu on June 1, 1565, on his 500-ton ship, went north to about 39 degrees 30 minutes and then crossed over, reaching Baja California coast in about 27 degrees 12 minutes. On October 8th he arrived at Acapulco after a voyage of 129 days, in the course of which 16 men had died. He was somewhat chagrined, no doubt, to find that another ship of his original fleet had preceded him across the Pacific. This was the 40-ton tender commanded by one Ariano. Nine days out from Navidad on the westward voyage, Ariano had deserted, eager to find rich islands for his own advantage. On one occasion in the Philippines, where he too went, he was nearly discovered by Urdaneta's fleet. Only the small size of his ship saved him, for from the top of his mast he was able to see the ships of Urdaneta just above the horizon. Ariano had started the return voyage on April 22. He ran most of the time between 40 degrees and 43 degrees, and is said to have reached the American shore about at Cape Mendocino, being possibly the discoverer of that point. On August 9th, he came to anchor at Navidad, having thus completed the eastward voyage two months earlier, and in twenty days less time than Ordineta. Nevertheless, Ordinetta got the credit. As commander of the expedition and sponsor for the ideas which the deserter Ariano followed, Ordinetta was clearly entitled to the honor. In 1566, the first trading voyage of the galleon was made, but the account reads more like a romance of Treasure Island than it does of a commercial venture. One more guerra preached mutiny among the men and got a majority of them to turn pirate. The plan was to get rich quickly in Chinese waters and then return to Europe for a life of ease and plenty. The men rose and murdered their officers, but Morgera himself was soon put to death, and another succeeded to the command. At one of the Caroline Islands, the majority disembarked to make it a suitable piratical base, leaving only a few men on board. Two of them, however, were the chaplain and the master's mate, who had not sympathized with the plot. They persuaded the others to help them get up the anchor and sail away, and twenty eight would be pirates were left marooned on the island. In the early years of the trans Pacific trade, two or three ships crossed the ocean annually, but they were very small. Down to 1571, they ranged from forty to eighty tons. Later, only one ship of 500 tons or more made the yearly voyage, though the law restricted their size to 300 tons for a number of years, afterward raising the limit to 500. The galleon seems to have been a picturesque craft. According to one writer, the galleons were, quote, huge, round-stemmed, clumsy vessels with bulwarks three or four feet thick and built up at stem and stern like a castle, end quote footnote. Drake's vice-admiral defined them as ships with a keel three times its width in the middle and with a depth in the hold of two-fifths of the width. In other words, in a ratio of fifteen, five, and two. In footnote. It was both merchant ship and war vessel, though the armament would not now seem very terrifying. Ordinarily there were three small cannon, four catapults to hurl stones with and some fifty muskets down to fifteen ninety three there was little interference with the trade of the galleon whose goods were sold at a remarkable profit in both new spain and peru gradually the merchants of seville who enjoyed a favored position in the trade with spain's colonies gained an impression that the commerce of the manila ship was cutting into their profits and in 1593 succeeded in introducing a policy of restriction of the trade. According to them, the sale of Chinese silks had ruined the silk industry in Spain, and pre-19th century economic views never for a moment considered the welfare of the colonies if it clashed with the interests of the homeland. In addition to fixing the tonnage of the ships, and the limitation of the number to one a year, Many other obstructive measures were taken. Only citizens of Manila could own or ship goods. The value at Manila was limited to $250,000, with a right of sale at Acapulco for 500000 The trade was restricted to New Spain, and the merchants of Peru were excluded. The Philippines were forbidden to trade with China, where silks were made. At times, even the carrying of silk on the galleon was forbidden and, because it was regarded as bad economics to let specie get out of the country, the amount of silver that could be taken on the westward voyage was reduced to small proportions. In practice, every one of these restrictions was evaded, but there were periods of spasmodic enforcement of the law, and the evasion was only such as could be effected through the medium of a single ship. Thus, the Philippines were held so much in check that they never became as truly Spanish as the other dominions of the empire. Probably, too, the limitation of the trade, thus reducing the demand for a port of refuge on the North Pacific coast, prevented an earlier occupation of Alta California, a matter of great consequence in the light of the sequel. After 1734, some of the restrictions were removed, but the galleon remained an annual ship. The westward cargo of the galleon was light and of slight consequence, consisting mainly of small quantities of silver and articles of luxury. The eastward cargo, on the contrary, was remarkable alike in variety and in value. The boat was a veritable treasure house as it left Manila for the voyage to Acapulco. Footnote The following is a list of the number of products from the different lands of the Far East. China 135, the Philippines 39, India 17, Siam 7, Japan 7, Borneo 6, Macau 6, Goa 5, Java 4, including edible birds' nests, the Moluccas 4, including the much valued spices, Persia 4, Ceylon 3, Sulu Archipelago 2, and Cambodia 1, gum. From America and Europe came a total of 44 different things. In footnote. By far the most important source of this cargo was China, which also furnished the most prized item, silk. Lands as far away as India and Persia contributed something to the store of the galleon. Chinese junks brought over the goods, and their cargoes were bought wholesale for the merchants of Manila. Usually a year's credit was granted, and the Philippine government gave its bond as security. The goods were distributed to residents of the Philippines, according as they held boletas, or tickets, for space on the galleon. Many of the boleta holders were in fact operating on behalf of merchants in New Spain, despite the provisions of the law to the contrary. The cargoes went as a whole— all profits and losses being shared according to the number of boletas though papal bulls had been secured forbidding religious associations to engage in trade this order was evaded in the philippines as elsewhere and the trustees of the pious fund made themselves a veritable banking society the operations of this institution helped to give some idea of the enormous profits of the trade for example a man with $10,000 could procure a loan of $40,000, thus getting $50,000 worth of space on the galleon. A successful voyage would, however, bring him in from 100000 to 200000 giving a fine return on his investment after paying his debt. Meanwhile, he would be paying interest at the rate of perhaps 50%. If the ship was lost, he could borrow another $50,000 without additional security, and if the second voyage were a success, he would still be able to repay his loans and have a profit of at least 100%. It is no wonder that the zeal for trade not infrequently outran due precaution. The galleon was often short of armament in order to make room for a few more bales of silk, and it was nearly always overladen consequently there were many wrecks at best the voyage was extremely dangerous not only did the merchants of manila or their principals in new spain engage in trade but also every man aboard ship had a financial stake in the voyage thus salaries ranged from four thousand one hundred twenty five dollars for the commander or general as he was called down to twenty five dollars for a deckhand But the commander might make as much as $40,000 from a single trip, and the other officers would profit to the extent of $20,000 or $30,000, while the lowliest sailor would multiply his wage earnings many times over. Though every voyage meant imminent risk of death, men faced wreck or scurvy, exposure or capture, and paid a good figure for the privilege of a position on the galleon. Arrived at Acapulco, the cargo was inspected and officially valued at its $500,000 limit, though it might reach many thousands beyond that. The duties were collected, and a great fair was held. This was exceeded in size by the fairs of Veracruz and Jalapa, but the profits at Acapulco were richer. The law allowed a profit of 100% but usually the actual gains may have reached from 150 to 200 percent. The profit on silk was as high as 400 percent. An interesting phase of the history of the galleon was the passenger service. Missionaries were sent over from New Spain and returned to that kingdom when relieved from duty. Their life aboard ship was not always happy, For the officers of the galleon reflected a feeling which many in the Philippines had, that soldiers and merchants were more needed there than missionaries. Then, too, on the return voyage, they occupied valuable space which otherwise might serve for cargo. Troops to guard the ship and to supply the needs of the Philippine garrison were also carried. The service in the Philippines was so distasteful, however, that ingenious methods were often resorted to to get volunteers. Making capital out of the universal vice of gambling in New Spain, recruiting officers would go about playing five dollars against a man's enlistment, and sooner or later they would get their man. Philippine government officials traveled on the galleon, and stowaways were often found on the voyage from the Philippines, but rarely if ever to there. Passengers proper consisted mainly of Mexican and at times Peruvian merchants. A paternalistic law required them to take their wives lest they commit bigamy or else promise to return home within a stipulated time. Since bachelors could only take $150 in private property with them, while married men might take $300 worth, there was a certain financial advantage in being accompanied by one's helpmeet though it is doubtful if the limitation was very strictly enforced the fare seems often to have been a private venture of the officers who took the passage money for themselves and provided for the maintenance of the passengers out of their own stock of supplies there was a great difference in the nature of the voyage itself by the westward and eastward routes the westward voyage was comparatively easy requiring from two to three months according to the amount of delay necessitated by threading through the difficult philippines group itself having found a satisfactory route the spaniards followed it steadily for 250 years passing through a veritable ocean of islands the hawaiian among others they did not sight land until they reached the carolines or the ladrones and never discovered the other groups along the way the eastward voyage was one of the most perilous that the world knew. In the voyage of 1697-1698, gemelli Carreri, an Italian traveler, was a passenger from Manila to Acapulco, and, fortunately for posterity, wrote a full account of his journey across the Pacific. According to the translation in Churchill's Collections of Voyages and Travels, this is what the experienced globetrotter had to say. Quote, the voyage from the philippine islands to america may be called the longest and most dreadful of any in the world as well because of the vast ocean to be crossed being almost one-half of the terraqueous globe and with wind always ahead and for the terrible tempests that happen there one upon the back of another and for the desperate diseases that seize people in seven or eight months lying at sea sometimes near the line, sometimes cold, sometimes temperate, and sometimes hot, which is enough to destroy a man of steel much more flesh and blood, which at sea had but indifferent food. Quote. In the first place, a departure from Manila had to be made before the end of June, for a later sailing meant that they would be caught in the terrific typhoons which occurred shortly afterwards. Getting out of the Philippine Islands was one of the most dangerous tasks, and it often took as much as six weeks to do that alone. Between the Ladrones and northern Japan, incessant storms were encountered, and not a few vessels were wrecked. If they went ashore in Japan, they were in danger of being plundered. It was largely on this account that the Spaniards were for a while so eager to find two imaginary islands, which they called Rica de Oro and Rica de Plata, as a way station in which to refit without being under the necessity of touching in Japan. Turning eastward, they ran with the Japan current along the 40th parallel, though at times they got as far north as 47 degrees, until they saw signs indicating that they were approaching the North American coast. Then they turned gradually toward the south, Sometimes they sighted the coast as far north as Cape Mendocino, while at others Baja California was the first land they saw. Usually, however, they first approached the shore in the vicinity of Monterey. As they neared the coast, there was a time of great hazards on account of the bad weather, cold, fog, and the variety of currents. The voyage of Gimeli Carreri took 204 days and five hours, or almost seven months, about the usual time. For over five months of this time, the galleon was on the high seas without making a single stop or coming to anchor. Naturally, there were many unpleasant incidents, aside from the dangers of the storms, in such a long voyage. It may be presumed that seasickness gave some the same sort of a disagreeable sensation that it does to many today. Furthermore, there was no opportunity to promenade, as on a present-day ocean liner. Space was far too valuable to be wasted on any such luxury. Indeed, there was often not enough room below decks to sleep. Cramped quarters rarely improved dispositions, and the Manila galleon witnessed its share of quarreling. On one occasion, said Gemelli, the pilot's mate had some words with a passenger he carried over on his own account, who, complaining that his table was too poor, the other struck him on the face and then run after him with a knife. For punishment, both men were obliged to stand some hours in the Bilboas, but there is no record of any further protest by this particular passenger. Gemelli confided to his journal, however, his own distaste for the food and for the hardships of the voyage in general. The poor people stowed in the cabins of the Galleon bound toward the land of promise of New Spain endure no less hardships than the children of Israel did when they first went from Egypt toward Palestine. There is hunger, thirst, sickness, cold, continual watching or wakefulness, and other sufferings besides the terrible shocks from side to side caused by the furious beating of the waves i may further say they endure all the plagues god sent upon pharaoh to soften his hard heart for if he was infected with leprosy the galleon is never clear of a universal raging itch as in addition to all other miseries if the air then was filled with gnats the ship swarms with the little vermin the spaniards call gorgojos Bread in the biscuit, so swift that they in short time not only run over cabins, beds, and the very dishes the men eat on, but insensibly fasten upon the body. Instead of the locusts, there are several other sorts of vermin of sundry colours that suck the blood. Abundance of flies fall into the dishes of broth, in which there also swim worms of several sorts. In short, if moses miraculously converted his rod into a serpent aboard the galleon a piece of flesh without any miracle is converted into wood and in the shape of a serpent i had a good share in these misfortunes for the boatswain with whom i had agreed for my diet as he had fowls for his table the first days so when we were out at sea he made me fast after the armenian manner having banished from his table all wine, oil, and vinegar, dressing his fish with fair water and salt. Upon flesh days he gave me tasajos fritos, that is, steaks of beef or buffalo dried in the sun or wind, which are so hard that it is impossible to eat them without they are first well-beaten like stockfish. Nor is there any digesting them without the help of a purge. At dinner, another piece of that same sticky flesh was boiled without any other sauce but its own hardness and fair water at last he deprived me of the satisfaction of gnawing a good biscuit because he would spend no more of his own but laid the king's allowance on the table in every mouthful whereof there went down abundance of maggots and gorgojos chewed and bruised On fish days, the common diet was old, rank fish boiled in fair water and salt. At noon we had mongols, something like kidney beans, in which there were so many maggots that they swam at the top of the broth, and the quantity was so great that besides the loathing they caused, I doubted whether the dinner was fish or flesh. This bitter fare was sweetened after dinner with a little water and sugar, yet the allowance was but a small cocoa-shell full, which rather increased than quenched draught. Providence relieved us for a month with sharks, and Cacharetas the seamen caught, which, either boiled or broiled, were some comfort. Yet he is to be pitied who has another at the table, for the tediousness of the voyage is the cause of all these hardships. Tis certain that they take this upon them, lay out thousands of pieces of eight in making the necessary provision of flesh, fowl, fish, biscuit, rice, sweetmeats, chocolate, and other things, and the quantity is so great that during the whole voyage they never fail of sweetmeats at table and chocolate twice a day, of which last the sailors and grummets make as great a consumption as the richest. Yet at last the tediousness of the voyage makes an end of all, and the more because in short time all the provisions grew not except the sweetmeats and chocolate, which are the only comfort of passengers. This statement was not overdrawn. The food was bad primarily because of the tediousness or length of the voyage, but there was also scant variety, and vegetables and fruits were little or not at all in evidence. The water, too, was not always good sometimes it ran low for only enough was carried to last until the next expected rain so as to yield more space for cargo for the same reason the water barrels were often hung in the rigging at the mercy of wind and storm wherefore it was likely to get salt under all these circumstances the galleon soon became a floating hospital with the men in various stages of sickness from the scurvy and kindred ills The death rate was incredibly high. As the galleon neared the California coast, one after another would give in to the disease and be cast overboard when he died. There were some amenities, however. Now and then they danced, for Spanish dances can be danced in one place without the need of a smooth floor. Hence, this interfered in no way with the cargo. Frequently, there were impromptu plays and charades and always they gambled. Cockfights furnished a great medium for gambling in the early stages of the voyage, and at such times there were chicken dinners. The men caught sharks and cacciaretas while a vessel was in full flight by hanging out a rag flying fish for them to jump at. When they had their fill of eating these monsters of the sea, they would have cruel sport with them. Thus says Gamelli, quote, One great one was thrown into the sea again with a board tied to his tail, and it was pleasant to see him swim about without being able to dive down. Two others were tied together by the tails, one of them being first blinded and then being cast into the sea, the blind one opposed to the other that would have drawn him down, thinking himself taken." As soon as the signalis or signs of land, were noticed as they approached the California coast, the sailors held a mock trial in which they brought humorous charges against the officers and passengers. All were sentenced to death, but were permitted to buy themselves off with money, sweetmeats, wine, or the like. According to Gamelli, he who did not pay immediately or give good security was laid on with a rope's end at the least sign given by the president tarpaulin. I was told a passenger was once killed aboard a galleon by keel hauling him. End quote. At length the galleon pulled into Acapulco, where it anchored under the fort, and, at least in the case of the voyage which has so often been referred to in the present account, made fast to the shore by means of a rope which was tied around a tree. After 1734, with the gradual removal of restrictions on commerce, the importance of the galleon diminished. Foreign ships began to trade at Manila, though until 1789 this was against the law. In 1763, direct trade between Spain and the Philippines around the Cape of Good Hope was instituted in 1785 the philippine company was established and was granted the privilege of trading with manila from spain and of carrying goods directly between the philippines and south america the islands gained as a result but not so the galleon finally the merchants of manila themselves asked for the abolition of the galleon service and for permission in its place for private-owned ships, as well as those of the company to trade with Spain or the colonies. The request was granted, and in 1815, after a quarter of a thousand years, the sailings of the galleon were abandoned. The relation of California to the galleon is almost as long a story as is that of the galleon itself. Many allusions will hereafter be made but the gist of the tale may be given here. Except for a few outstanding voyages, the only ships which visited Alta California prior to 1769 were those from Manila, and they came every year. Yet, precise information of their voyages is lacking. Indeed, after Urdaneta, only Gali in 1584— Rodriguez Cermenjo in 1595 and Gamelli Carreri in 1697 have left any known records of visits to Alta California shores. Footnote. The Gali and Rodriguez Cermenjo voyages will be taken up in chapter 10. Gamelli first came to land at Catalina Island. In footnote. A work of navigation by Gonzales Cabrera Bueno, published in 1734, gives a fairly accurate description of the coast, except for the emission of San Francisco Bay, and tells how the galleon usually sighted the region of Monterey. The Vizcaino expedition of 1602-1603, of which more later, had one of its principal causes, the discovery of a port, Which could serve as a suitable way station for the galleon. And this matter was agitated for the next hundred and fifty years, being one of the important motives for an advance of the Spanish conquest to Monterey. In 1734, the galleon stopped in Baja California, and thereafter did so occasionally at other times. In 1775, orders were given that the galleon must stop at Monterey under penalty of a fine on the commander but it would seem that it rarely did so. In any event, it was forbidden to trade in Alta California. However little documentary evidence of actual voyages down the coast may ever be found, the importance of the galleon in promoting Spanish conquests toward Alta California demands emphasis. A way station was desired, not merely to allow men to recover their health and repair the ship, but also to send word of their coming, and to receive it in turn of the presence of pirates or foreign enemies in those seas, if any there were. For, at least in the seventeenth century, this was one of the grave but altogether too customary perils of the last stages of the voyage. Footnote. The principal materials used in the preparation of this chapter were the following. 1. Carreri Giovanni Francisco Gamelli a voyage around the world by dr john francis camille carreri translated from the original italian in a collection of voyages and travels edited by arn and john churchill london 1752 two shirts william lytle a study in the beginnings of trans-pacific trade berkeley california 1912 manuscript Ph.D. thesis in the library of the University of California. End of footnote. End of chapter 8.